Hi, welcome to another edition of Resistance TV. Sorry about the uh, delay. We've had a few technical difficulties getting through to our guests, but uh, it's a nice programme anyway. We're going to be looking at two very different approaches to political activity with the help of John Booth, who's recently reviewed a couple of books by two contrasting characters. And the first is Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair's former spin doctor, who spent much of his time from 2015 trying to undermine Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and to overturn the EU referendum. The second is Neil Findlay, who, by contrast, was an enthusiastic supporter of Jeremy Corbyn and is an unapologetic socialist. Neil came to politics from a working class background and served as a Labour MSP in the Scottish Parliament for 10 years until 2021. Uh, perhaps the only thing that uh, Campbell and Findlay have got in common is that their partners are both called Fiona Miller, which I thought was rather interesting. But anyway, uh, John Booth, anyway, who's our uh, guest this evening, is a long-standing journalist and the Labour Party's former chief press that role, believe it or not, by Peter Mandelson. But things began to go sour after a relatively short time in the job. John's worked for newspapers and magazines on both sides of the Atlantic, including a stint at the Washington Post. And he's also trained journalism students at two universities. His political activisms included being elected as a local councillor, serving as a school governor and standing as a Labour parliamentary candidate. And he's been an advisor to a couple of all party parliamentary groups on climate change and human rights as well. He's currently a member of several political struggles and he helped to found the All Grief Truth and Justice campaign. Welcome to the show, John. That's uh, an impressive CV, comrade. Good evening, Chris. Well, um, you do what you can, don't you? That's uh, in whatever circumstances you find yourself. Um, I thought I'd be able to do it for the Labour Party when Neil Kinnock and Alice and uh, Peter Mandelson headhunted me for the job way back in the yeah. mid 80s. Uh, but that didn't work out, as you've said. So no. you have to pay the bills uh, and you also want to make a political uh, involvement and commitment where you can with what opportunities come up at the time. And that's what I'm still trying to do here in Scotland as well. No, indeed. indeed. Well, look, I know you're a still a you know, prolific uh, writer and uh, you do regular columns for the Lobster magazine and you regularly, I don't know, you find the time, John, to kind of read these books and do these kind of detailed uh, reviews of them. But I know you've been looking at uh, a couple of books, as I say, by Alice Campbell and, and Neil Findlay. I mean, perhaps we could just start, John, if, if you could just maybe, in your opinion, you know, set out their, their contrasting approaches to, to politics, because I think in many ways, you know, it kind of summarises really the the kind of the, the dichotomy between, I guess, those of us who supported Jeremy Corbyn's surge and the, the movement that was built around him against the the sort of new Labour approach that was personified, obviously, by Tony Blair and taken on then by Gordon Brown and obviously is being resurrected by Sir Keir Starmer in some ways, even even worse. But just just kind of set out with you those two books and uh, and their contrasting approaches, if you if you could. Yeah. Um... I've never met Neil Findlay. Um, I'm hoping to in the next few weeks. I only moved to Scotland three years ago and uh, um, there was COVID, so I've not had a chance to meet him. I met Alistair Campbell briefly because when I was the party's chief press officer, I discovered that Peter Mandelson had set up something called the Shadow Journalist Group, of which he was a member. Um, but that's the only contact I've had with him. The difference, I think, basically, is that Neil 
who came from what was a mining community in Scotland uh, and then became a bricklayer working for his dad, I think, initially, um, and then became involved in politics because he'd grown up during the miners' strike. And I think that had a, a major influence on his thinking and his attitude as it has for so many other people. And the contrast is with Alistair Campbell, who was at Cambridge University, in which apparently he showed no interest in politics at all. He was recruited in the Daily Mirror training scheme, uh, which took him to Devon. Chris Mullin went through the same kind of training scheme with the Mirror at the time. Um, and he moved to London and then became very close to Robert Maxwell, who was owning the Daily Mirror at the time. And Maxwell promoted him first to edit the Sunday Mirror and then the Daily Mirror, which was a very influential position. And from those positions, um, Alistair Campbell became very close to the then leader of the party, Neil Kinnock. Um, and he's been, and basically, I think Neil inserted him into the upper reaches of the Labour movement in a quite different way, whereas Neil Finlay has come up through the grassroots. Um, after being a bricklayer, he retrained and worked as a teacher. During that time, he became involved in local government as a councillor and from there became a member uh, of Holyrood uh, as a member of the Scottish Parliament. And along the way, he's been involved in basic grassroots activity around a number of uh, campaigns. One was to ensure that the miners who were convicted during the miners' strike in Scotland actually were pardoned, in which he was very successful. He's been involved uh, in a very important campaign on behalf of women uh, and women's health. Uh, the book goes into quite a lot of detail about all of that. And he got frustrated, I think, basically, because of the state of Labour within Holyrood. Um, the, the Labour Party in Scotland, as we know, went through a whole succession of leaders. Um, mm. And he was trying, I think, to rebuild the Labour Party as he best he could see it within Holyrood when it had suffered such a big assault uh, as the rise of the SNP, which was largely during the time of New Labour. Um, and he just got frustrated. There was no solidarity there from what his book says. They were having meetings to plan things. And then before he knew where he was, it, was in, it had been leaked in a rather biased way to one of the newspapers. Mm. And uh, in the end, I think he decided that he could find better ways of using his energies. And he now works with a couple of people he'd worked with in the Labour Party at that time, advising trade unions and community groups on how to best uh, pursue their campaigning effort. Campbell, on the other hand, has been throughout his life, I think, he's what many people would love to be. He's become a professional anti-Tory for 40 years uh, and been paid pretty well for it, um, first by Maxwell, um, then through Rupert Murdoch, and then, of course, when Blair became leader, he was then hired by Blair as opposition, his opposition spokesman, and then got to this very powerful position when Blair became prime minister, in which he had power, it seems, um, over not only other ministers, but over civil servants as well, and, and over MPs, and people were who were in Parliament at that time were rather in fear and dread uh, that because he had so much power with the media, 
uh, if they didn't stop in, step in line, uh, then Alistair Campbell would do what he could to make sure that uh, they were punished for that. Uh, he wasn't mm. alone in that. Of course, my old friend Mandelson was part of that same uh, rather thuggish mm. behaviour. But it's a different way of approaching things, the grassroots upwards, bringing people with you, educating them along the way. And the other is very much coming in at the top, uh, do as I say or else, kind of yeah. top down. That, that's no, the basic, that, that's a bit of an oversimplification, but I think that's the essence yeah. of the thing really, Chris. No, indeed. Of course, you know, the likes of Alistair Campbell, um, as you say, in the upper echelons of, uh, you know, the uh, the party uh, and very influential, very influential on notional <laughs> policy makers. Um, and you're saying that Neil is, um, Neil Findlay is, uh, you know, he's focusing on, on grassroots campaigning. But when it gets then to the point where, you're needing policymakers to, uh, you know, make a decision, as it were, to fulfil the ambition of of you know particular campaigns and so on. Obviously, the approach that that uh, the likes of Campbell have, have taken gives them uh, a head start to push the issues that they care about. I mean, you know, how can we or what can or is there anything we can do to, you know, address that? I mean, you know, we have, I think we thought we. We'd got there when, or we were getting there anyway, when Jeremy became the leader, and there was a there was a definitely a mass movement, a social movement building, and there was certainly talk anyway about building political consciousness, etc. But that's all you know dissipated and, and gone away now. I mean, what? How do we? How do we kind of regain that, or or is there a way of of taking the Alistair Campbell route, but but in a more honourable sort of approach, as it were? Well, my view when I was recruited to work with the Labour Party was to use whatever professional skills I'd acquired as a journalist and had uh, been involved in running the press relations for the National Union of Teachers when it was doing battle with Margaret Thatcher and Sir Keith Joseph and Royds Boyson, for those of memory, go back to those yeah, dark and Yes, I remember those days. characters, yeah. And, yeah. and it seemed to me that the job is really to do with supporting the work of the grassroots and using what skills that you've got um, to supplement their activity, basically. Um, and people are not silly. People who get involved in politics are passionate. They're often very knowledgeable about the sectors in which they operate. We just have to listen to Mick Lynch talking about what's happening on the railways yeah, sure. and we realise he has enormous expertise and when I was at the NUT I'd never been a, a teacher of any kind at that time but there were teachers who knew from day-to-day -day practical experience of what was going on what needed to be done and my job as running the PR department at the NUT was to help them communicate that in a largely hostile media as it was during the Thatcher years. It was the Sun, it was the Daily Mail, um, the Telegraph, obviously. Um, and the difference is, I think, that I discovered quickly, I suppose, with Mandelson, it took me a while in retrospect to reflect on it. They didn't see political communication in that way. It was meeting the terms of the media owners. And we know that Blair and Campbell 
went off to meet Rupert Murdoch, didn't they? They flew all halfway around the world. And basically, they operate within the framework that the commercial leaders of the media, the male owners, Murdoch and so on, they work and say, we'll work within your agenda. And then it becomes so much easier to get favorable coverage. If you know that Murdoch's going to support you, um, you know, as the Senate played before, it was the sun what won it, then the, the difficulty then politically to me, which we, you really get into the difficulty, you get the coverage, but you don't get the politics uh, because it's all refracted through an acceptable way of doing things. And there are other ways in which you can use the skills of people who are committed to whether it's a political party or to other campaigns to use the skills the best way you can to present yourself in the most effective way. And you know it's going to be an uphill struggle with the commercial media the way it is in Britain. But that supplemented by other kind of activity and the disputes over the last six or eight months have shown just how successful trade union leaders can be when they can talk knowledgeably. They've obviously got people advising them, but they've learned basic skills of presentation which can still work alongside the commitment of people who turn up on the picket lines and turn up within political parties to actually do the work. It's possible to do both. But I think the difference is that Campbell and Mandelson and the people who are involved in the generation they've trained of people who think the only way to do politics is by pleasing the media, is that you don't move anything forward. I mean, you look back at New Labour and you say, What's its legacy been? Mm. Even Tony Blair's constituency went Tory. There's no living yes. legacy. There's no, no living indeed. legacy. And so no. it, you have to find ways. And in each situation, in each campaign, it will be different. But you listen to the people on the ground. You work with the grain of what they're doing. And then you present it in the most effective way you can. Mm. And I think Jeremy was not particularly well served uh, in that regard. Um, he had a lot of popular support. I mean, it was simply astonishing. You saw that, Chris, clearly for yourself. But at the same time, he was running up against all kinds of conservative forces at home and abroad. And that made it very, very difficult for him to, to cut through. I think there are ways he could have done it that were better. And I offered my help, and I know several other people did. But he chose the way that he wanted to try and communicate in that kind of way. Um, mm. And it wasn't very effective. Um, no. But if you're taking on the power of the state, if you're taking on the United States, if you're taking on the power of the Israel lobby, you've got to be very street smart. And you've also got to be sure that your supporters are with you in that effort. Mm. It's got to be an effort of grassroots activity as well as quite sophisticated public relations as well. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, we were sort of getting there, weren't we, with uh, with Jeremy, with a membership uh, around 600,000. If you take in the kind yeah. of, you know, registered supporters and so on, I mean, you you know, we were talking around 800,000 people, an enormous uh, block of, of people, which I think could have grown still further had, you know, the, the Zionist lobby been, been taken on. I think that kind of derailed him to a large extent and obviously the EU referendum. But just, just in terms of... Uh, you know, New Labour, I guess they, they would argue that, you know, in terms of legacy, that when they left office, uh, satisfaction in the National Health Service was was very high, that they, 
invested in things like uh, Sure Start, uh, the Introduce the Minimum Wage. Um, although we said that, of course, inequality continued to get worse. Child poverty was, was still a major issue. Uh, they didn't eradicate that, even though they couldn't, which indeed, you know, should have, uh, uh, should have done that. But I just wonder, John, you might want to comment on that uh, in terms of those, you know, if you like, successes in inverted commas, which, of course, have all been unpicked anyway now. Um, but when I joined the Labour Party back in 1976, it was a very different animal, actually. And uh, I mean, see, Tony Benn was, was in his pomp. Uh, and certainly after we lost the election in 1979 and led the democracy reforms, which were uh, implemented, you know, the open selections, mandatory uh, reselection. But I'm just thinking in terms of, and I know I think you worked on the, the weekly newspaper that the Labour Party produced, um, and I found that a, a really as a, as because I was very naive, I knew bugger all about politics. I kind of, you know, had a sense of what was right and wrong. But uh, mm. I found that was a really useful um, uh, tool, if you like, as of political education in that sense. That, that Labour Weekly uh, uh, newspaper that was that was produced, and um, it seemed that members at constituency level had, you know, had more influence and. Uh, you know, policy of the conference was uh, was was a much more of a sovereign body and, and, and a kind of a you know it was a body that was taken more notice of. It seemed anyway, you know, back then. I wonder whether you might just sort of for for people because we're talking quite a long time ago now, and obviously a lot of people watching you know will have come into politics long after all that had been thrown in the bin. I wonder maybe if you might just sort of map that out a little bit, the sort of terrain. You know that, uh, that, that we're still, I think, around actually when you when you were head hunted to to go and work for the party. But you'll obviously have a lived experienced it and know about it prior to actually working for the party as well, won't you? Yeah, I mean, I'm not one of these people who think everything in the past was wonderful. Um, I don't believe that about almost anything. The reason I went to work for the party was because I believed it needed to modernise its communications system. Um, it was a really decrepit outfit. I mean, those who were watching who read books or remember it, the rather dilapidated way that Michael Foote used to appear at a press conference and nobody seemed to quite know what was happening and where things were going. And that, to me, was just shambolic. And if I could be part of something which was saying, the message that we've got is good, Let's learn how to communicate it in a more effective way, modernize our techniques of doing it. Then that was all to be welcomed. The danger I saw, and it became more obvious in retrospect after I was fired by the Labour Party, was that the people who Neil employed, who initially were Mandelson, and then obviously Campbell was very influential in that, became very influential. They worked as a pair, Mandelson and Campbell together was that that was a different way of doing things. Um, they basically took the view, I think, as Mandelson said, that people who voted Labour had nowhere else to go. And they were so desperate after the years of Thatcher with all the horrible things that were happening, mass unemployment, the closure of the pits, things that happened in education and the health service and the rest, that there were people who were desperate to say, for goodness sake, let's get rid of these people. <laughs> a similar sentiment is going on at the moment. Um, the problem was that we modernised the way the party communicated, but along the way, we lost a lot of its direction. So when I joined 
the party, it was committed, for example, to taking, looking critically at American foreign policy. It was serious about trying to do something about the education system and certainly the public schools, which obviously I think are one of the principal barriers to change in this country still. Uh, and we were serious about that. We were serious about trying to do something with the city. People were serious about all of that. There were groups within the Labour Party who were critical about the role of the state and the secret state, what had been going on in Ireland and so on and so forth. So those were there, but the agenda that Neil and then subsequently after John Smith died became Blair, they weren't making any challenges to the status quo at all. And politics became defined as what a few people around Tony Blair said to the political lobby. And that really doesn't affect any change. That's why there's no legacy. And the party membership was then increasingly felt conference doesn't matter. We'll have some other way of deciding policy and all the rest of it. And people who get committed in politics, you've done it, I've done it, being a local councillor, we don't do it for the money. Most people on the left in the Labour Party do it because they have a sense of moral priorities and imperatives. And they want to be part of something that effectively changes things. And what happened, of course, under Blair was he accepted the foreign policy priorities of the United States. We now know from Ilak Ed's book that a lot of the funding that came to him in opposition came from supporters of Israel, including paying a large part of Alistair Campbell's salary. And so yeah. all, you were, all you were getting was a rather glitzy presentation of the status quo, which left more and more members feeling, well, we aren't needed here. We're, there are things happening here which over which we've no control whatever. And, of course, it showed in the subsequent event, big turnout in 97, and then in subsequent general elections until the defeat of Gordon Brown, the popular support for Labour just declined and declined. And morale amongst the membership disintegrated. The party wasn't effectively existing in many places except as a shell. Um, and that's what Jeremy, I think, helped revive. Um, there were different things that could have been done, I think, to make that popular support more coherent. Um, but he was also up against, I mean, there was an absolute determination by the British and American establishments to destroy him. And so I think whatever he did was almost going to be impossible to deal with, I think. I think he could have tried in different ways. But that's saying that with the benefit of hindsight, I think it got to the point in the latter part of his time there where it sounded like the leader's officers was like sort of Hitler's bunker in the final days of 1945. They just didn't quite know what to do. Um, they were just harassed on so many fronts. Yeah. And it was a I mean, I think, Sorry, go ahead. Go, no, I mean, well, I'm just going to say, I mean, I think to some extent they brought that on themselves, though, with the responses yeah. that they... That they uh, gave to the uh, attacks, as it were. But, you know, John, I mean, you know, you were saying whatever he did, it would have been difficult, it might have been impossible. I mean, in a way that can be seen as a council of despair. I mean, I think maybe if they'd have taken different turns and there were, it's not as if there weren't people saying do it differently. I mean, I was certainly telling Jeremy to yeah. stop apologising. Yeah. Um, uh, and fully enough, in an exchange with... Um, 
with Alistair uh, Campbell, a private exchange with uh, with Alistair uh, Campbell that I had. I was uh, trying to prevail upon him to use his considerable skills to work for a Labour victory and pointed out to him that that uh, when I I'd been well, I'd been a member for forty odd uh, years and. Uh, that I, you know, through thick and thin, and although I disagree with virtually everything that Blair did, I, you know, I remained a loyal member. I mean, I had my disagreements, but I kept them private. I didn't, uh, you know, as it were, make those public and continue to work for Labour Victory. And I was trying to prevail upon him to, to do likewise. And um, I mean, he was um, sounded, uh, you know, a little rattled by the, how he'd been perceived as being treated by. Jeremy, John McDonnell and others as being the kind of devil incarnate sort of thing, you know. Uh, but he continued on his um, on his uh, trajectory of uh, continuing to undermine the party. I just wonder, uh, I mean, you mentioned there, John, that um, some of his salary was funded by the Israel lobby. I mean, we know a lot more now about the influence of the Israel lobby, thanks to the Al Jazeera documentaries, the lobby, mm-hmm. and uh, more recently, uh, the Labour files, etc. Um, and obviously some of the work that, that, that we've been doing on Palestine declassified. Mm-hmm. But how, how significant would you say, in your opinion, the Israel lobby was back then? I think it's always been there. Um, and I think particularly, let's try and get the timetable of this, of this clear Um, the influence of the Israel lobby within the Labour Party historically we don't don't need a big history lesson um, was always always there going back to the creation of Israel Uh, but it became stronger I think uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union Um, and the American foreign policy and the Israeli interests were very much allied once the neocons became influential in Washington. When I lived in Washington, it was just the beginnings of the neocon revolution. And that influence became ever stronger. Um, And a lot of people on the left were very reluctant. I've been been writing about this for 25 years. and a lot of people on the left, and we saw it very clearly during the anti-Semitism smears that went on that hit you and other people, a lot of people in the party and generally on the left progressives didn't want to go into that because they were sensitive to charges that they might be seen as anti-Semitic. But we know perfectly well that when Tony Blair became leader, he was introduced to Michael Levy as the fundraiser by the Israeli embassy. That's how it took place. And then Michael Levy, who'd had a lot of success as a successful businessman in pop music and the rest and raising money uh, for various good Jewish causes, he set about bringing in lots of money um, of enormous sums. And we know it's on the record now that he got that from a lot of people who previously had helped fund the Conservatives. They weren't people who were Labour supporters. They were people who were supporters of Israel who were wealthy. And basically, they wanted the money to go to a future Labour leader who was going to continue to support Israel. And that's what happened when uh, John Smith died in 94. 
the money from Levy came in. It paid not only for Alistair Campbell, but Jonathan Powell. Jonathan Powell had been quite a senior diplomat. And the idea of going to work for the leader of the opposition, of being a senior diplomat, or like Campbell, a very well-paid Daily Mirror senior journalist, you're not going to do that for peanuts. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. And they went and Levy supplied not all of the money that went into Labour. There was some union money and there's some members money. But that's where the bulk of it came from. And that fitted very much with Blair's view. And of course, after 9-11, the whole thing then became much more polarised. You know, George Bush saying, if you're not with us, you're with the terrorists and all of this yeah. thing, which... Campbell talks, his, his book is about, in part, we've got to fight polarisation in politics. Well, that was one of the most polarising events of the 21st century, was 9-11. And on the back of all of that, Blair became very popular in the United States. And on the back of that, the late Israel lobby then capitalised on that in a very serious way. And that was a situation that Jeremy then had to deal with. And they tried all the various other smears. He was a Czech spy and all of this kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it was the one that was the most pervasive. And it found a ready uh, and willing backing with Murdoch, of course, as a strong Israel supporter, yeah. with Daily Mail as well. Um, and it also found a strong support on the right of the Labour Party and people like Campbell, who were quite prepared, as you know perfectly well in, in your election, Chris, um, yeah. they were quite happy to see people like you defeated rather yeah. than you being part of a majority Labour yeah. representative in Parliament. Uh, yeah. And people on the right of the party are absolutely... I'm reading Chris Mullins' latest book of diaries at the moment, and he right. gets increasingly exasperated through the time of Jeremy's leadership, saying, don't these people want a Labour government? And it was perfectly plain that they didn't. It was perfectly yeah. plain that you'd won your marginal back in 2017. And yeah. the reason I came to work for you uh, was because I only knew that the Labour Party would only get a majority in Parliament if people in Tory marginals that you, had, you were in were won again. And that yeah. there a lot of people on the right of the party, they weren't interested in that. And the, Labour, the Ford report and others have shown that that was true, that they didn't see the enemy so much as the Conservative Party as the people on, on the left of the Labour Party getting into positions of influence. And we're seeing Starmer doing all of that with the way now he's basically uh, handpicking people into constituencies. The parachuting of favoured people continues. We've just seen it in the by-elections um, in Selby and other places. Um, and then they're not people who want to charge, challenge the status quo mm. in any serious way at all. Um, no. And therefore, they're getting an easy right from the media. Uh, that's, oh, that's yeah. The way well, I mean, you know, Starmer is, uh, is the establishment's man and it will give the illusion, should he win the election, of, of some semblance of democracy, you know, but it's just be red Tories rather than blue Tories. Basically... They're also all the all the major political parties are signed up to the neoliberal consensus uh, on the economy and and the war machine. They, you know they're in the pockets of the military. That's all of the political parties, of course. Yeah, I think the positive thing for me, Chris, and it's important to be positive. I think uh, we can all, you know, we can, 
I'm frustrated that I've spent the last 40 years of my life not being able to do anything for the Labour movement no. in any serious no. way. We've all got our disappointments and our frustration. The important thing to me is to look to the positive things. And there are quite a number. I mean, more and more young people, for example, on the Israel issue, they're seeing on social media children being murdered on a daily basis in Israel. They're seeing even people who are devoted citizens of Israel taking exception to the policies of Netanyahu. We're seeing a, a distinct change amongst young Jews in the United States and from what I gather beginning to happen here who are wanting to identify as Jews but not to identify with Israel and its policies. Yeah. And social media means, I mean, the Sun readership now used to have that dominant position. I think the Sun circulation is now a third of a million. It's a fraction of what wow. it was. Yeah, it's, yeah. it was in the millions, wasn't it, at one point? Oh, yeah. it was, I mean, it was, you know, uh, it, it had a powerful force. It doesn't have that anymore. And there are lots of, this, you know, there are so many people taking the initiative in so many positive ways, using social media, in what goes like the sort of thing that we're doing tonight. I mean, I've not been interviewed by a mainstream radio or TV channel in 30 years. Yeah. I couldn't even get coverage at the BBC when I ran against Mandelson to warn against the forthcoming Iraq war, which had been tipped about yeah. in America in 2001. And these yeah. are very positive signs, I think. I don't underestimate the problems. We're going through horrific times in this country. Major underinvestment, the NHS, the state of the health service, the cost of living, the real fundamental problems with housing got in this country, they're serious. But I do see very positive signs and I see social media bringing it together for young people in a way oh, yeah. that means they can't be, they can't be, the events of the world can't be concealed in the way that they used to be no, when indeed. the media controlled things. And I, I concentrate on the positive, I concentrate I'm trying no, to I think do that, the positive I think, thing. Absolutely. Well, I think as socialists, we, you know, we have to do, you know, we, we're dreamers, aren't we? And so I think we have to be uh, positive. Otherwise, you know, we would we would give up. I mean, I have to give credit to the, the world's richest man who's uh, opened up uh, Twitter uh, again because mm -hmm. there were uh, substantial restrictions being placed on left and right, to be fair, um, when he yeah. came in. And there was some scepticism, I've got to say, because... Mm -hmm. It seemed he was opening up, uh, you know, right-wing uh, commentary. But um, people who were kind of left of centre socialists, uh, they still seemed to be being um, suppressed. I know I certainly was. I was shadow banned and my oh, Twitter yeah. profile was labelled as Iran state-affiliated media because I present a programme yeah. about Palestine yeah. on, on press TV. But what I was just going to say, just on that point, John, about, about being optimistic and, and actually tracking back as well to your comments about when you uh, got involved with the Labour Party and started working as the press officer, and you felt that there needed to be some modernisation of the of its uh, communication uh, operation, um, but then that went wrong. And I think a lot of people have associated, uh, you know, modern sort of you know communication techniques with you know kind of New Labour being right wing, etc. But prior to all that, the Greater London Council under Ken Livingstone used those sorts of communication techniques to hugely uh, uh, influential effect. I know they didn't actually win the battle. This has come back to the point about having key people in the policymaking area, as it were. Um, but in terms of in the court of public opinion, um, 
I mean, you know, the GLC were incredibly popular, and that I think was in large, in large measure, wasn't it, to that communication uh, campaign that they embarked upon to try and save the GLC. I mean, you obviously lived through that, John. Just say a little bit about that, if you can. Yeah, I think, and the thing that I mean, with the GLC, which for younger people was the was the body that ruled over Greater London, uh, which became so effective and so popular that the Tories abolished it basically, uh, yeah. they, they got rid of it. But what was key to me going through the beginnings of that with Ken Livingstone was there was a serious commitment. I lived in London at the time, and it wasn't just a media thing. That was important, and Ken was very good at that. But there was a grassroots labour movement desire for change. I mean, John MacDonald played a part in that. And I remember people going round to local labor parties and to trade union groups saying, if we, be, if we get tech control of the GLC, which had been constructed by the Tories to have a permanent Tory majority, they never thought yeah. labor was gonna, was gonna win it, that, that that was happening at the same time. So when Ken came up with various things like fair fare for London transport, those of us in the party knew that was what was going to be done. We knew the sticks and arrows that were going to be thrown in our direction to contest it. So we were able on the ground to say, no, this is perfectly possible. We can do it. This is popular. There is popular support for this kind of thing. People would go to the tube stations and the bus stations with leaflets from the Labour Party and say, this is what we want to do. This is how we're going to change it. And on top of that, we then had Ken using the media very cleverly, um, intelligently, to supplement that activity. And that did that, that worked very well, so much so that the Tories had to abolish the GLC. Um, yes, that's what they well, Ken, Ken wrote and a book, didn't he? Uh, you may have reviewed it, John. Uh, if voting changed anything, they'd abolish it. And it was all about the, the GLC, yeah. uh, what they did and the campaign to save it and the ultimate uh, abolition of it. Yeah, I think, I think it's true. And it also, it required some political education I mean, the thing reading Chris Mullins' latest diaries, it, the, the Tories under Osborne were able to keep repeating this idea. There's no money left. This is why we've got to have a surety. And where did that come? That came because an idiot member of the last Labour government left a note when he left the Treasury saying there's no money left. A no, Labour man. And it's been used for 10 years. I mean, absolutely oh, yeah. stupid. It's because I think a lot of those people who were around in New Labour, the latter part, were living in a world in a bubble of their own. And they were just, they were just absolute hostage to fortune. I mean, we've been hit with this. There's no money left. There's no money left. With no education about how economics really works. Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, look, I've been banging on about this for, for years in my own sort of yeah. limited way. And I think it's getting more traction now, this recognition that as a currency-issuing nation, we can never run out of money and the tax doesn't actually fund your public services, it's used to generate a value for the currency, to drive behaviour change, to tackle uh, inflation uh, and create space, you know, if the economy is overheating um, for uh, for public expenditure. In fact, Richard Murphy was advising, we've spoken about this on Richard's TV a few times and regular viewers will probably be bored of me talking about this, but, but Richard Murphy was advising uh, Jeremy, um, was very much, you know, talking about essentially, you know, embracing a sort of a modern monetary theory approach to to economics. This is why it got labelled by by Chris Leslie, the the Blairite uh, former shadow chancellor, as Corbynomics, which you know became a sort of a snappy 
it was it's meant as a pejorative put down, but it was rather snappy, uh, uh, sort of strap line, as it were. And uh, but unfortunately, it was never embraced. I mean, John John McDonald never really kind of bought into it. I think John was still constrained by by neoliberal uh, orthodoxy, neoliberal thinking. But just in terms of that point as well, John, about you know being optimistic. I mean, despite you know forty over forty years now of of neoliberal uh, uh, sort of propaganda, um, and you know. Stupid mistakes. I mean, didn't just start with uh, that ridiculous uh, note that uh, Liam Byrne left about there's no money left, which is, you know, economically <laughs> illiterate anyway. But I mean, yep. uh, Dennis Healy, when he went to the International Monetary Fund uh, in 1976, um, that was the kind of first monetarist government thereafter. And even even Healy admitted that it didn't need to go for that loan. I mean, they never need to go for it anyway, because, you know, Britain was a, a fiat floating currency. It had been since 1971 when Nixon booted out the Bretton Woods uh, agreement and they paved the way for Thatcher to turbocharge this sort of, uh, you know, neoliberal uh, economic approach to kind of trickle down in economics and all of it, you know, coming as it did, the unholy alliance of her and, uh, and Reagan. I mean, that kind of transformed the world. But in spite of all that, though, John, I mean, there is still popular support for basic common sense socialist policies, like bringing yeah. the water industry back into the public ownership, bringing oh. the railways back into public ownership, the utilities, yeah, yeah. you know, kicking the privateers out of the public services, particularly the health service, etc. So that should be cause for optimism, shouldn't it, as well? I think it is. I mean, I live in Scotland, and so the water and sewage is included in my council tax every month. Yes, because, it was yes, never, yes. because it was never privatized. It was never privatized here. No, no. And no, there's lots no. of things wrong in Scotland. I'm not saying it's perfect. I mean, I just think it's an incredibly difficult uphill battle to engage with the orthodoxy, which people are hit with every day through the media and the BBC. A lot of it is unthinking, but we know that young people are facing a terribly difficult future. I saw it when I was training young journalists in London and struggling to pay the bills and couldn't afford to live in London and all the rest of it, and seeing the jobs go in the media to people whose moms and dads had good connections and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot, lot to do, but I think the urgency of the situation, particularly I think the housing thing, uh, is now really hitting so many young people they know oh, there's yeah. absolutely no prospects of them getting anywhere near buying their own place. And yeah. the people who are renting are having enormous difficulty now getting stuff at an affordable rent. Um, I lived in a shared ownership place in London with Housing Association, which became increasingly corrupt because it was taken over by estate agents and developers of various kinds when Housing Associations historically had been peopled by the stage army of the good and great, you know, yeah. rehabbing properties. It's become big business, particularly in London, I imagine in other cities too. So there's a demand from young people for a future. The climate change, obviously, is the main image that people have in mind. The children have a future. An image which was very strong to me, I was talking to somebody the other day, he said the current generation have been born on the Titanic. Uh have been born on the Titanic. Good analogy. And th that's known to people. And I think people in politics have a responsibility, as somebody said to me many years ago, 
is to identify a problem in a way that makes the resolution of it more likely. Mm. And it's possible to do that instead of being consumed by gloom and despair and despondency, which hits us all from time to time. It's possible, and that's the responsibility of politicians, not many of them are living up to it at the moment, to say, yes, we have problems, but we can work with the grain of the desire for change in a positive way. And when people do that, and we've seen that in Latin America, we're seeing it to some extent in what's going on in Niger at the moment, it's happening in various places around the world. Our politicians are still locked into the neocon politics and the neoliberal yeah, yeah. economics back from Thatcher days. They haven't got out of it. And the movement, when it stops being a movement and just becomes a top-down Alistair Campbell, Peter Mandelson operation, doesn't go in for any kind of political education of any kind. So we're left well, with people. it suits their agenda, doesn't it? It suits them it's to their agenda. keep, and, keep, and keep so, the masses ignorant. So younger people have become very vulnerable to despair unless politicians say, yes, we've got huge problems, but this country has had huge problems in the past and we've mm. managed to deal with it. The example of what we did after the Second World War in creating the NHS and council housing and so on and so forth is there. But there aren't many people around because the political system at the moment, the party system, sifts out the people who express mm. the kind of things you were expressing when I came to work for you in 2017, saying, we can do something about this. We can mm. actually change it. And there are people working in different areas of this country who are doing positive things. And we need to be encouraged by that uh, and not to give in to the Daily Mail gloom of, gloom of day stories no. and all of that no, kind no, of thing. No, no, of thing. course. And, uh, and mean, it just... It, Sorry, go ahead. I'm just gonna, talking to no, I was just going to say, John, I mean, no, not at all. I mean, I mean, obviously, I like to be optimistic. Um, as we've already said, it is important. But I can't have any confidence in the present crop of politicians. No. I don't think any of them no. are, are going to step up to the plate, no matter, you know, how much the, the grassroots uh, kick, kick, kick off about it. I mean, perhaps in conclusion, are you, are you optimistic that the – established parties could be replaced by um you know an insurgent alternative if that do you think the left is capable of of coming together to bring that about do you think the trade unions will actually you know i mean we've seen the bakers union already no, no other unions followed their lead in in disaffiliating from the labor party i think that's what it's going to take but it seems that you know the an important pillar of the labor movement in the you know the trade unions are still seem wedded to the Labour Party and the left outside the Labour Party. It's, it's like, been like herding cats. I've been banging on about the importance of, of collaboration and coming together. Um, I mean, are we capable of, of, of doing that? Are we capable of on the left of coming together, do you think? And do you think the trade unions are prepared to bite the bullet and follow the lead of the Baker's Union and, and, and strike out and build an alternative to the Labour Party, which is clearly... Uh, you know, party which doesn't work in the interests of, of the trade union members. I, th I mean, who knows where it's going to go? I mean, it could be that the Labour Party, which was created at the end of the century before last, has got a limited lifespan. You know, it was a phenomenon of a particular kind, and it's happened to other organisations who have had a lifespan or not. 
and I, do, I genuinely don't know about about that. What makes it more makes it more vulnerable to its life coming to an end is the fact that its current leadership and its previous new Labour leadership didn't select people for potential leader position leadership positions in the future who had any kind of alternative way of looking at things. They wanted people in there, you know, Yvette Cooper and all the rest of it. We've now got Ed Balls and George Osborne virtually saying the same thing. They finished up going yeah. to George Osborne's wedding, for goodness sake. Yeah, I know. No real I know. So whether the Labour Party is an old bottle into which new wine can't be poured, um, I'm not sure. I think a lot of people, because we know there's going to be an election within the next year, and not trying much by way of new initiative now. And that's very much like I remember it being when I worked for the Labour Party and after Thatcher and saying, for goodness sake, stop quibbling about the little things, just get rid of these bloody awful people, that kind of thing. But I think the situation is now because the vulnerability of the economy and the state of the country and the decay that we've now had in this country for 40 years makes it very difficult. My hope is that there'll be enough younger people emerging to say, right, this is urgent, whether it's climate change or finding a house to start a family. We've got to do something serious about this. And for mm -hmm. the threat to be presented in such a direct way to say all our little vanities and our little jealousies, which we know has afflicted left movements, all my, all my life, yeah. of people who did things to people and people who slept with people and fell out with them and they carry on their, you know, all of that for generations to come. The People have got to be seized of the idea that to have a future, we need to bury a lot of these vanities and find a way of working together. At the moment, I think that's an open question. I mean, I'll continue pushing. I haven't been kicked out of the Labour Party yet. Um, but I'm you, you might be after lot... tonight, John. Yeah, for a long time. I mean, I've put my energies, I retain my membership because I'm yeah. obstinate. I don't like the yeah. cuckoo taking over the nest, basically. Um, mm. But I'm, my, most of my energies are going into other campaigning activities, which are quite separate yeah, from the other party. I think born of the same moral and ethical impulse. But I yeah. think a lot of people will be the same. And we'll see what, I mean, I don't think anything is much going to happen to challenge the status quo this side of a general election. But I think once the general election is through, whoever gets in, whether it's Starmer following the current Tory agenda, which is looked to be that in a very authoritarian way, that's going to provoke yeah. a reaction as well. And we'll see where it goes. For the moment, I put my energy into young people. I mean, I'm very lucky. Yeah. I'm still playing cricket. And on Sunday afternoon, I was playing with a 12-year-old who I've been coaching for the last year. Right. And the pleasure of working with young people and encouraging them to acquire skills Fantastic. in something. Yeah. that is, a, I think it's important for us older generation, uh, and you're younger than me, I think, to, to look at ways of communicating with the young, which isn't patronising, uh, yeah. to, is supportive and is encouraging of their initiatives, not to clamp down on their uh, their thoughts and their activities, to yeah. encourage their imagination and their commitment. And you just have we just have to give it our best shot, Chris. That's where I am. Yeah. No, indeed. Um, 
And finally, finally, uh, I did say that was in conclusion, but I just wanted to get your thoughts about proportional representation. I mean, do you think the Labour Party, if we perhaps had a hung parliament, because, I mean, I'm seeing now, I mean, you're still a member of the Labour Party, and, I mean, I know this has been a debate inside the Labour Party for a long time. I used to be on the wrong side of the debate, in my opinion. I was in, in favour of keeping the first-past-the-post system. I'm totally opposed mm. to that now. I think it's totally undemocratic and, and certainly... It, it, you know, it leads us to this to this corrupt system that, that we now have where, you know, political system kind of serves. Well, I was just saying at the outset, really serves in the neoliberal uh, capitalist class and the and the uh, military industrial complex. Um, do you sense any realistic chance that should there be a Labour government, um, particularly if it doesn't have a particularly big majority or if it's a minority government, that, that we could get proportional representation? And what's your thoughts about that? Are you a supporter of it or not? Yeah, well, my my thinking probably like yours has changed over the years. I mean, my fear about most systems of proportional representation is how much power it gives to party organisations to put their chosen people on lists. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, they uh, did. And you go that, for the and seen, seen, yeah. Because I've lived abroad, I've seen how that works in a very yeah. negative way. But I think it's one of the things that's got that's got to be thrown into the mix for change. Um, I mean, you're in Scotland, and, John. I mean, they've got proportional representation up there, and that's yeah. a kind of a mixed system, isn't it? It's a list system, and yeah. it also has a constituency uh, uh, aspect it to it as well, doesn't it? it? Does. And I think to have there's got to be some way of linking um, what goes on in a constituency into the representation in their parliament or the legislature, where, wherever it is. Uh, I mean, there are some countries that have got proportional representation and the people who are on the list aren't even linked to a geographical community. Yeah. Yeah. They do whatever they want. I was talking to someone, yeah, yeah. I forget what country it was the other day, somebody complaining to me about this and saying, there's, there's no grassroots responsiveness to them because they don't have grassroots. They're part of a national list system. So there's got to be, if we move in that direction, there's got to be something that retains the link with people, real people living in real places. And are you there getting are a sense that, that there's, any, there's any realistic prospects of it, though, John? I think we know what the arguments are as to why we should do it and what we need to be mindful of in any new system that's brought in. But are, are you getting a sense, uh, you know, as you say, you're still a member of the Labour Party, that... There may be a realistic chance that a Labour government might push for that or not. I, 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 I honestly don't, can't say about that because I live in Scotland. Um, I've been here most of the time it's been COVID, so I don't really get a feel for what's going on. Right. Right. I don't have much sense that there's much energetic thinking going on within mm -hmm. the leadership. The leadership is clamping down on everything, not only you know, kicking out Jews for being anti-Semites and all this absolutely outrageous stuff yeah, that's yeah. Been, been going on. I don't think there's much room for that kind of thinking. But I think it's one of the pressures that's going to result in change down the road. I, so. I, think, I think the National Policy Forum, the Labour's, you know, the, the, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a flawed system for, for creating policy, in my opinion. And I think it's something that Jeremy and, uh, and indeed, I think John McDonnell at the time was talking about, you know, replacing, you know, abolishing the National Policy Forum. But as I understand it, they recently agreed that uh, proportional representation should be, you know, part of the Labour programme. So we'll 
We'll have to wait and see on that front. But uh, John, yeah. I think we're about out of time. It's been a really interesting uh, discussion. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time out to join us uh, this evening. And uh, apologies, everybody, that we were uh, slightly delayed in starting, but we had difficulty, as is ever, yeah. particularly with people of our generation, John. And, uh, tell, tell, them that was, tell them that was my fault, Chris. It was me not being very <laughs> IT aware. And very often, I, you know, I have the same sort of uh, technical uh, difficulties. But, John, <laughs> I know that, uh, you, as I've said, you, you know, you're a prolific writer. Where can people follow you on social media and, and, and actually read the work that you do for the Lobster magazine and things like that? And have you got any yeah, links well, that you can tell us about? Yeah, well, I tweet under my own name. So if you put John Booth in, you'll, you'll find where I am. I've been doing that for about five or six years now. What's your Twitter handle? Is it just at John Booth then, John? Yeah, I think it's at John Booth. If you put my name in, I think it's 2000, at John Booth 2017, which is when I started, okay. I think. Right, but right, right. You'll right. Find, so there'll be a lot of find, John Booths on Twitter, you see. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think it's 2017. Um, okay. And my website is a constructed name because I live by the fourth and I play the piano. So it's called Cut. Fourth Fourth Zando, F-O-R-T-H-Z-A-N-D-O.com. ForthSando.com, and I've been writing latterly under my own name and for 25 years under a pseudonym for a magazine called Lobster, L-O-B-S-T-E-R, Lobster Magazine, who've been digging into issues to do with the secret state um, and foreign policy and British contemporary history for over 30 years now. Um, and there's some good people writing there, Colin Challoner, former the guy I used to work for on climate change, an ex-MP who had to walk the plank to make room for Ed Balls to have another safe seat in Yorkshire, which, of course, he duly lost. He writes regularly yeah. for them, and they have some good people writing. So Lobster Magazine, forsando.com, and at John Booth 2017 at Twitter. Um, and I encourage people to do the same thing, uh, to tweet and do social media stuff. I do a website now because... It saves me the problem of having to negotiate with editors. Uh, no, indeed, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, indeed. Well, listen, we thanks to. again. Well, thanks again, John, anyway, as I say, for, for taking the time out. And I could definitely uh, urge our viewers to uh, look up John's at work. Uh, we talked about uh, raising political consciousness, political education. You get a huge amount of that uh, from from reading John's uh, content, particularly on his uh, Lobster uh, work and uh, obviously on his website as well. Uh, and then please share it, share John's work around, because uh, the more we do that, obviously, the more that we can inform other people. And as we keep saying, uh, the old labor movement maxim about knowledge is, is power and that's, that's absolutely true. So thanks again, John. Thanks everybody for watching. That's it for uh, this evening's uh, Resistance TV. Hopefully we'll be back next week at the same time. So until then, this is Chris Williams saying bye for now. Thanks very much, Chris. <laughs>